Would you follow along as I read? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Within that text is a very important word that is seen throughout the Bible. It's the word holy. I wonder when you hear that word holy, or maybe the word holiness, how does it land on you? I did a non-scientific survey on Twitter this week, and a whopping 50 people responded to my survey, and yet the survey was interesting. I asked, how does the word holiness strike you? Do you love it? Have you been burned by it? Are you not sure? And what was interesting is that um, about 50% of people did not respond, love it. So about half of people said, I love it, but another 50-some percent, about 48%, they weren't sure, they were nervous, or they'd been burned. So where does the word holy or holiness land on your heart? For some of you, it's a theological word. It, it refers to the essence of who and what God is, or maybe you think of the Holy Bible, or if you grew up Catholic, you think of the Holy Father. If I press it a little bit further, if you were to run into somebody who talks to you and says, you know, we need to be holy, what's your first reaction? Some of you grew up in a church like that, and you're in what I've kind of called the church recovery program, because oftentimes with that kind of tone, that kind of conversation, it's usually followed by a list of things that Christians are not allowed to do. And as a result, you may have grown up in an environment that was rule-oriented, fear-based, and kind of behavior-focused. And so for you, the word holiness, or the idea of what it means to be holy, has a lot of baggage. You may even be here as a new follower of Jesus. You've put your trust in Christ in the last number of weeks, months, or maybe a couple years, and the idea of holiness is something that really relates to, like, like a super spiritual Christian. Like you wouldn't think of yourself as holy. Or maybe your grandma was holy because she was old and she didn't sin a lot except for the soap operas that she watched, but the Lord forgave her for that. No matter what your background is, no matter where you've come from, the word holy has a lot of things connected to it. Some that are good and some that are bad. It's a loaded term. Our place in 1 Peter today identifies this word holy as an important reality in terms of what it means to be an exile. In fact, I'm gonna to argue today that the exiled life is essentially a holy life. So here's the thing about these exiles. They weren't exiles because they traveled to a different land. They weren't exiles because they moved. They were exiles because in the midst of their culture, they became outcasts. Why did they become outcasts? Because they were holy. 
So as we think about what the exiled life means, there's a lot of things that it means in terms of marriage and family, engagement with government, a lot of things in regards to how we are to think and how to rejoice where our treasure is, all of those things. But fundamentally, what makes the exile an exile is that there are a group of people in the middle of the culture who are different than everyone else. And so while they've never moved or never changed locations or changed jobs or changed families, they're exiled. Why? Because they're holy in the midst of an unholy culture. So this morning what I want to do is to dial into this theme of holiness and this idea of what it means to be a holy people and to help you to see that Christian exiles are called to be holy. That's what we are. We are to be a holy people. For those who know Jesus, you're called to be a holy person. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I hope to lay before you the case as to why you ought to receive Jesus and what that means, not only in terms of what you believe, but actually how you live. What Peter's gonna tell us here is that Christian exiles are saved from unholiness and they're saved to holiness. Saved from unholiness, saved to holiness. Holiness. And can I just tell you pastorally, church, we need Christians today who are committed to holiness. In the midst of a world that would look at who we are and what we believe, we need people who love the Bible, are filled with the Spirit, who are passionate followers of Jesus, who not only sing great songs on Sunday about holy, 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 but who Monday through Saturday live that out and how they live and where they go and what they do and what they watch and what they think about and how they talk and how they use their money and their sexuality and all the things of what it means to be a human being in this world. That to be an exile, a Christian exile, means that we are a holy people. And what I want you to do is to take inventory with me today as to this question. So how is that really going? Because I think that there's a lot of people who have named the name of Jesus, who would call themselves an evangelical Christian, who are having a little struggle with what's going on in our culture today, and here's the reason why. Because they would prefer to have a culture that doesn't make them feel like an exile, because at the end of the day, they really don't love holiness. They'd rather have God fit into their culture than to have them fit into God's culture. And I think that's the rub. And so today I wanna help you understand this and maybe encourage you help you think about what it means to follow hard after a life marked by holiness. My aim is to have you do one thing differently this next week. So they're saved first from unholiness. So Peter starts <clears throat> by pointing them back to what they were saved from in order to motivate them toward personal holiness. How does he do that? Well, the first thing he does in verse 14 is remind them about their new spiritual status as God's children. So in order to demonstrate to them what their past was all about and what God saved them from, he, he first identifies their spiritual status. That's why he says, as obedient children. Obedient children. Being a child of God means, in the Bible, that something miraculous happens to a person when he or she puts his trust in Christ. It means that when you understand your sin, when you understand the forgiveness offered to you in Christ, when you say, I believe in Jesus, and I'm gonna trust in him, God does something in the heart of a human being that is miraculous, so much so that the biblical term for it is they are born again. 
In John chapter three, Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the meaning here is simply that a miraculous transformation happens inside of a soul of a person. So being born again means that something so deep Something so important, something so spiritual, something so at the core of who a person is has been changed. That means this, that the moment that you received Jesus, while you didn't understand all of the effects of it, something in you fundamentally altered forever. Something so deep in you that you couldn't get to, something so fundamental to who you were, something such as the essence of what it means for you to be who you are was, was invaded by the person and the work of Jesus. And the effect of that being born again is this, that you love things you would have never loved before. Some of you are in church and you can't even believe that you're in church today. Not because you woke up and got here, but I mean, like, if you look at your life, like, it's crazy that you're here. In fact, your family looks at you and they're like, what in the world? You read your Bible, you see things in it, you begin to change. Your life is marked by behaviors and patterns and thoughts that are just so otherworldly. It's not like who you are. And that's the point. That's what happened. Jesus came and invaded your life. You were born again. You became an obedient child. And what Peter wants to remind them is something unbelievable happened to you. When God invaded your life, when he called you to be his own, a miracle happened within you. That's why Peter uses this metaphor of being born again in other places. For instance, in chapter one and verse three, he says that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Or in chapter one and verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again. The idea is this, that God's work in us through Christ, it changes who we are, it changes what we do, it changes what we love. And that's why Peter says, as obedient children. Now listen, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. When you come to faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that suddenly now everything you do is always godly all the time, you're always holy. That's not the way that it works, but it does mean this, that something so core to who you are has been fundamentally changed that there aren't really words to describe how different you are on the inside. And granted, there's still a war that's going on within your soul to try and fight for the right things and try and put off the things that are wrong, but here's the deal. That war is there, and before it wasn't. You just went after everything that was wrong, and you started pulling your life apart and destroying things around you, and Jesus invades a person's life, and suddenly what they love and what they desire and what they celebrate changes, and the Bible says, that's a miracle. So I don't know if you had a really bad week last week, like you were involved in all kinds of sinful things that you're full of shame of today. Can I just remind you of, even in that condition, God still loves you, has renewed you, and has set your heart on new things. So why not instead just say, God, I've sinned again, here I come, but you are my king, and I'm gonna trust in you. As obedient children, Peter says, something has changed within you. So he reminds them that they're obedient children. Secondly, he calls them to then not be conformed to their past lifestyle. Look what he does in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Essentially, he's calling his Christian exiles to remember where they came from and not to conform their lives to their previous ignorance. That word ignorance means more than just they didn't know what they now know. We use the word ignorant in two ways, as it does in the Bible. We, we use it for someone who doesn't know something, or more often, when we say that person's ignorant, it means 
They should know better, but they don't. They're ignorant. And that's the point. The idea is this. Look, when you were doing things before you came to Christ that were wrong, you knew they were wrong. Somewhere inside you, you knew lying was wrong. You knew immorality was wrong. You knew talking about people behind the back was wrong. You knew stealing was wrong. You knew all those things was wrong. There's no way you could be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know all these things were wrong. You knew they were wrong. But the difference was in your former ignorance is you didn't care. And then God, by his spirit, came and convicted your heart and realized who you were and who he was. And in your former ignorance, suddenly now you see what you could be through the person and work of Jesus. And what Peter is saying is don't go back to that former way of thinking. That idea of former ignorance shows up in uh, Ephesians chapter four. Here's what Paul says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And notice the linkage here between thinking, heart, feeling, all of it's all combined. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The idea is this. Look, all kinds of impurity, sensuality, all the things that are sinful, those things in and of themselves are just the tip of the iceberg of the bigger problem. There's a connection between the mind, the actions, and the heart. And what Peter is doing here is driving us to dissect our past, showing us that our problem in the past was not just our ungodly actions, but it was our ungodly passions. We didn't just do the wrong things, we loved the wrong things. So he doesn't just talk here about sinful actions or behaviors of the past, he actually gets more foundational. He addresses the sinful desires. And that's why human beings need saving. That's why if you're not here, if you're here today and you don't have Christ as your savior, that's why you need saving. That's why we all need saving because what Jesus comes to do is not just change what you do, he comes to change what you desire. He gets underneath your actions, your attitudes, and he fundamentally changes who you are. So no matter what your past is like, no matter how colorful it is, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, if you just take a step back, what Peter is essentially saying here is this, that our brokenness as human beings is far deeper and more tragic than just what we do. Our brokenness affects what we desire, what we pursue, and what we celebrate. And the tragedy of our lost condition is that we are hell-bent on destroying our lives and destroying the people around us while celebrating it and convincing ourselves that we're doing what we should be doing. And what Peter says is that is your former ignorance. Which is why Peter says, don't be conformed to that. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it means you see that. And, and the older you get and the more distance you have from your past, can you not see it more clearly? I mean, do you not have things in your life that you can look back on and go, what in the world was I thinking? Or you look back in your life and you know how you used to think and Sometimes in our home, we'll call that stinking thinking. And we'll look back and see ways that we thought, and what Peter is saying is that the followers of Jesus need to be careful to think and love in a manner that fits with who they are as obedient children and not to conform their lives to the stinking thinking of their past. You see, one of the dangers in the easily embrace tendencies that hinders our holiness 
is forgetting what we were saved from and what serious trouble we were in. Now, I'm not suggesting that you overcompensate and sort of wallow in your past failures, but friends, there is something right and something very helpful about remembering where particular thoughts and particular people and particular attitudes and particular affections led you in your former life so that you don't start messing around with the things that are characteristic of who you were. To be reminded, that those things held me in bondage. Like that stuff nearly destroyed my marriage. Like that person, that person almost ruined my life. And then you get a little distance from it, you start dabbling with it, teasing with it, kind of going there, and Peter says, what are you doing? That's your former ignorance. Why, why would you be messing around in that particular area? See, there's a healthy sobriety of understanding how dangerous our lives were before Jesus rescued us. You ever had it where you're driving in a car and have a close call, almost a car accident? Pull up to the stoplight and say to all your kids or your spouse, hey, do you have your seatbelt on? The close call reminds you about the importance of that seatbelt. In the same way, what Peter is attempting to do here is to remind them that their former life was what they'd been delivered from and they need to have a serious understanding of their former life. J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Holiness, wrote it in the 19th century. It's probably the seminal book on the matter of Christian holiness. Here's what he says about a sober assessment of our sin. He that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. This is the difference between parents and children. Children think, well, there's no problem with this. I can do whatever I want, especially they get into the teenage years and they get better arguers about that. And parents have lived long enough to see the tragic effects of that, and part of the tension in the teenage years between young people and their parents is the fact that parents have a different understanding of human corruption than what teenagers do. That's the essence of the tension, which means if you're a teenager, I have a little newsflash for you. Your parents know more about life than you do. Take that to the bank, there we go. <laughs> and they thought their parents were dumb too. <laughs> but they weren't. The difference is that there's a different understanding of human corruption. They've seen more. They've smelled the pain of broken relationships. They've seen the consequences of sin. And what Ryle is doing here is reminding us way back in the 19th century that to understand what holiness is means you've got to understand the seriousness of sin. So let me ask you can, you, can you look at your past through this lens? Can you be thankful that God has saved you from what he saved you from? Can you just... Glory in the fact that you're here today? If you're a follower of Jesus, that you're able to sing songs that you would have never sung 20 years ago. 
There's things that you listened to that you would never have listened to before. Your heart was closed, and then God opened it, and now you're here, and what I'm saying resonates within you, and some of you, you so love what I'm saying, and that's so incredibly miraculous, because 10 years ago, or four days ago, you would have never loved anything in 1 Peter, and God, by his Spirit, did that work in you. And yet, are there particular relationships particular habits that are starting to put you back on a path that feels awful familiar? Are you flirting around with something that burned you in the past? Is there anything over which you should say this morning in your soul, God, save me from that. Why am I messing around with this? You see, sometimes we can begin to think that, oh, we can handle it. You see, the battle for holiness is not just an issue of what we do, friends. God saved us from more than wrong actions. Mm. He saved you from wrong affections. He saved you from wrong desires. And being a holy exile means that you get that, like you understand, like being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean just that I do the right things. It means now, crazy, I love different things. I love the right things. I don't love it perfectly, but I love things that I would have never loved before. And being a holy exile means that your posture towards the things in your past is not conforming your life to the way it used to be in terms of what you love, what you desire, and what you do. And you could look at those things and say, yeah, I could do that, but I don't want to do that anymore because I've tasted and seen the Lord's goodness. So Peter first identifies what they've been saved from. Secondly, he identifies here what they have been saved for, which is namely, they've been saved for holiness. So here's the thing. God doesn't save human beings just so they can go to heaven. God saves human beings so that they can go to heaven and so that they can be holy in the future and now. God's aim is to save a people not just from their sins. God's aim is to save a people so they can be righteous now. So how does Peter make this argument? Well, first in verse 15, he says, but as he who called you is holy you also be holy. So the first thing he does is he points them to what God is like. So why should they be holy? His first answer is because God is holy. What do I mean by holy? Holy means that one is separated from sin, that, that, that God is separated from any sin, that he is devoted to his, his own glory and his honor. Holiness is pure and unadulterated love for what is right and what is true and what is perfect. God's holiness means that there is a righteous injustice that is so central to the essence of who and what God is, that his glory and his holiness are one and the same. It means that God's holiness is so foundational to who he is that there is no one like him, no one like him, this week's fighter verse captures it well. I am God, there is none other. I am God, there is none like me. Why is there none like him? Because there's no one who's holy like he is. 
declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things yet undone, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So why is there no other? Why is there none like him? Because God is infinitely, majestically, eternally, thoroughly, righteously, and terrifyingly holy. No sin, no impure motive, no unrighteousness. He never lies, he's never wrong, he's never unfaithful. He's always true and always right and always lovely. He is absolutely and unequivocally and eternally holy. From the very beginning to the very end of time, he will be and always will be holy and there is none like him. That's our God. I remember my freshman year of college I was reading R.C. Sproul's book called The Holiness of God in My Dorm Room, and that book rocked my world. Because in, in that book, I saw afresh and anew that God saved me, not just from my sins, but he saved me in order to bring me to his holiness. And I began to see that my problem, my problem wasn't just my sin, because my sin was wrong, which it was. But my real problem was that my sin was an offense to a holy God. And in that moment, I saw my sin differently. I saw it not just as little things that I'd done that were wrong, but as an offense and treason to a God who was righteous and holy, a God who was full of unequivocal power. As a result, I saw grace differently, that God would forgive me in the midst of all of my treasonous acts. And I fell in love with God's holiness, and then something happened. When I fell in love with God's holiness, I wanted to be holy. And that was the crazy thing, is the more I knew about God's holiness, the greater the burning in my own soul became for my own personal holiness. And here's why, because there is always a direct connection between your intimacy with and your understanding of God's holiness and your affection for personal holiness. And that's where some of you have a really significant problem. The problem is that you don't love God's holiness And the effect is, you don't love personal holiness. Now don't get me wrong, you you don't wanna do wrong things. You, You wanna stop doing the wrong things. You wanna stop doing the things that are causing problems in your life, but the reality is, that's just half of the equation that ultimately what God aims to do in your life is to show you the beauty of who he is so that you so love his holiness that you want to be like him in that holiness. So that's why Peter starts with, as he who called you is holy. You know, there's some people who come to Jesus because they don't want to go to hell. And that's the only reason they come to Jesus. But can I just tell you, if the only reason that you came to Jesus is because you want to know where you go when you die, and you made some kind of decision, but that has no tangible effect on what you love and what you long for or what you do or what you think, I'm not sure you came to the right Jesus. 
Because Jesus comes to not just save you from your sin, he comes to invade your soul. He comes to take over what you desire and what you love. He comes to be Lord of your life, such that not perfectly, but in ways that are utterly surprising and stunning, like you love things you'd have never loved, and you wanna do things that you would have never wanted to do, and you hate things that you used to love, and you don't wanna do things anymore that you used to celebrate with others, and now your whole life is so radically different, and you look at yourself in the mirror and go, what in the world happened to me? And the answer was, I got saved through Jesus. That's what happened. Jesus comes to call people from darkness to light. And my question would be, do you love that holiness? Or honestly, as you're here today, is there just a part of you like, I don't, I don't, I don't love holiness. And if that's the case, if that's been a week problem or a few months problem or a years long problem, can I just invite you, today could be a very important day where you say, no more, I'm gonna love holiness in my life and God's holiness. And you're gonna start taking some tangible action steps today moving forward because this matter of God's holiness, you don't get to pick and choose if it's a big deal or not. Again, J.C. Ryle says this, most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are holy. Its occupations are all holy. And to be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while here on earth. We must be saints before we die if we are to be saints afterward in glory. It is common to hear people say on their deathbeds, I only want the Lord to forgive me my sins and take me to rest. But those who say such things forget that the rest of heaven would be utterly useless if they have no heart to enjoy it. So the reason that Peter anchors this command to be holy in who God is is because this is the essence of what conversion means and it's the impetus by which people come to practice godliness in their own life because they love the glory of God. So my question is this, do you love the glory of God? Because that's the only thing that's gonna help you to move forward in your righteousness, in your pursuit of godliness. You can't do it just because you know things are wrong or because you think you're gonna get in trouble or because it produces negative consequences in your life. All of those things may be true, but they're not gonna last. The only ultimate Motivation for holiness is you love something you would have never loved because God put it there, namely his holiness and his glory. Secondly, Peter argues that they're called to be holy by knowing what the scriptures say about God's people. Peter says in verse 16, Come back to verse 15 in a minute. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What he does here is he anchors this call to holiness in what the scriptures say. So he uses an Old Testament reference and we don't know exactly what passage he has in mind because there's no direct quote of these exact words but they show up in varying forms all over the Old Testament like in Leviticus chapter 11 and Leviticus 19 and chapter 20. And Peter's point is simply this, that God's aim, his plan, has always been to magnify his name on earth with a people who are marked out as holy. That's why he gave the law. It was to distinguish his people from all other peoples on the earth. 
so that they could then be a light to the nations. And their light to the nations was directly dependent upon their distinctiveness from all other nations on earth. And so the distinctiveness of Israel as a holy people was a central part of God's mission to reach other nations. And dear friends, can I just remind you that your ability to reach your neighbors, your ability to speak the gospel into this community, our ability as a church to declare that Jesus can really save people is the distinctiveness of the holiness and godliness of God's people. Why would a watching world want what we have if it doesn't work in terms of personal godliness and holiness? And I know you can drive that thing right off a rail into some kind of militant fundamentalism. I totally get that. But the fact of the matter is I hear a lot more talk about contextualization and cultural relevance than I do about personal godliness. And part of the challenge is the world needs to know why in the world would I want what you have. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Peter argues it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So friends, listen. In your family, if you're the only believer, you are called to be different. In your place of employment, you are called to be a godly, holy person. In your neighborhood, you're called to be holy. Your children, parents, are called to be holy if they're followers of Jesus. And that pursuit, that aim, that mission is worth all the effort, all the tears, all the challenge, all the praying, all the leaning into because Without that reality characterizing the people of God, our ability to speak into culture is gone. Because why would they want to be here on a Sunday? Why would they want to read the scriptures? Why would they want to sing songs if your life is exactly like theirs? You see, being in exile means you didn't move, but it means you're different. That you're separate, but not a separatist that you're different, but not odd. What Peter is doing here is calling these believers, it's calling us to realize the part of what it means to live the dream is to be a people who are serious about what it means to be holy. So, are you serious about what it means to be holy? Do you want godliness in your life? Do you see the beauty of who God is and do you want your life to be conformed to him? Or are you just in this Jesus thing because you want to know where you go when you die? I praise God for a culture that's beginning to shift and change because it's forcing this issue and having us to evaluate. How different am I really? And what Peter wants these people to know is they are to be holy. They are not to conform themselves to their former conduct. They're not to give in to the gravitational pull of where they have been. And so third, he says that they are to be holy in all their conduct. Back to verse 15, as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. The reason I put this last is because personal holiness springs out of a God-centered vision and a love for his holiness. If it doesn't, 
If your holiness doesn't spring out of love for God, it'll drift into legalism where you do things in order to have other people think good of you. Or it leaks into moralism where you do things so that you can think good of you. The only way you can find the zone of godliness is, I know what you did for me, I know the beauty of who you are, you have so changed my affections, I want to be like you. It's crazy the things I love, it's crazy the things I wanna put out of my life, it's crazy the things that, that you have now placed within my soul in terms of desires and affections. And the question that I want to, to lean into this morning is this, are you so in awe of Jesus that it then affects what you think about, what you look at, what you say, what you do with your body, what you do with your sexuality, where you go, what you do, how we do it, and with whom we do it. Does, does your love for Jesus just so affect every aspect of your life that in some big and small ways you can see the rule and reign of Jesus in your life that's just absolutely miraculous? To what extent does that describe where you are today? How active are you in applying the holiness of God in your life? Kevin DeYoung's written a great book called The Whole in Our Holiness, and he writes this. When was the last time that you took a verse like, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, from Ephesians 5. He says, when was the last time we took a verse like this and even began to apply that in our conversations, in our movies, in our YouTube clips, our television, or commercial intake? He writes, what does it mean that there be not even a hint of immorality among the saints in Ephesians 5.3? It must mean something. In our sex-saturated culture, I would be surprised if there were not at least a few hints of immorality in our texts and tweets and inside jokes. And what about our clothes, our music, our flirting, and the way we talk about people who aren't in the room? He writes, if, war, if the war on poverty is worth fighting, how much more the war on our own sin? So can I just ask you some, some pastoral questions? Are you a good friend in helping others to be holy? Do people feel safe spiritually around you? Or do they have to be on guard because of the next thing that you're gonna say or the next video you're gonna pull up on your phone and go check this out and say, oh. Is anyone helping you in your holiness? See, part of the problem for some of you may be that you're, and you're just trying to go it all alone. You've convinced yourself that you don't need anybody to speak into your life. And the fact of the matter is, is your holiness is flagging because you've proudly convinced yourself that you don't need anybody to help you. And you know what that is? That's a conforming pattern to your former ignorance. That's how you used to think. I got this. And where did that go? Parents, are you feeling the pressure to try and be like everybody else? Have you heard from your kids? Well, nobody else thinks like you do. First of all, it's not true. There's at least one other person on earth that has the same views as you do. Are you weary of trying to speak into the godliness of your own children, the holiness of their lives? Don't give up, don't quit, you can't quit. Can I ask you to be honest? There's not a single person who's gonna hear this message who doesn't need to grow in some area of holiness in his or her life. There's not a single one of us. And if you raised your hand and said, no, I don't, I would suggest, how about pride? <laughs> Start there. So 
What one thing between now and Thanksgiving could you do or not do in order to elevate the level of godliness and holiness in your life? Maybe you need to give something up, not because it's wrong, but because it's just not helpful. Maybe you need to start memorizing the word. I prayed with a, a gentleman after the service, first service, probably 60 years old, said, I need to start memorizing the Bible. Yes. Maybe you need to take the step of being baptized and going public with your relationship with Jesus or, or putting yourself under the authority of this church. Maybe it means getting into a small group or a discipleship group. Maybe it means that you need to identify and say, hey, I have a besetting sin, and seriously, I need some help. Or maybe it's that today you finally realize, I can't do this anymore. Like, I need to come to Jesus today. Like that change of desire, that change of affection thing, I want that. So here's the deal, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. I don't know where you are, what the last weeks have been like, but I do know two things, and it's this. Number one, God is holy. And number two, he calls his children to be holy. And the simple question that I would ask you in light of this text and in light of our culture and in light of what it means to be in exile is this. When it comes to your own holiness, How's that going? And in light of who God is, what do you think, by his spirit, he would say needs to change? And would you just embrace that today and thank God that his spirit still speaks to you and confirms that you are his child? Father, I ask you now to seal in our hearts the reality of this truth in your word, and I pray that you would empower now our next steps of obedience. Lord, what I'm about to ask of some people in this room is a risky move. I pray you'd give them grace, and I ask them, I ask this for them, in Jesus' name, amen.